welcome to the January 2011. Wow. Did you say 2011? It's 2011. Can we I call said, it you 11? You said those words? I had not said that out loud yet. <laughs> Can we call it 11? Uh, or does that sound uh, odd? Yeah. Year maybe. 11. What was it like during the original year 11? Let's see. Jesus was about five. <laughs> uh, six, maybe seven. The most. Okay. Well, we're back. Uh, welcome to the podcast. This is Ordinary Means. That's Matt. I'm Sean. And we are here this year continuing, actually, a uh, series we started back in... Did we start this in December? I think we did. Okay. Asking the so. question... I'll, I should pull up the blog here. Um, if, you, if you want to double-check us on that, pull up the blog. Uh, we're asking a question, and the question is, uh, is gospel-centered a good thing? Now, it's kind of an odd question to ask, because... I, I hope I'm gospel-centered, and, and I, I know Matt hopes he's gospel-centered. In fact, Matt might actually be convinced he's gospel-centered. And yet, why are we asking this question? And the reason is, uh, both Matt and I have seen uh, good and bad sides to the whole gospel-centered movement. And let's maybe begin there by saying that the gospel-centered is a movement and with any movement, you're going to have extremes on either side. Mm-hmm. And with any movement, you're going to want to be very, very careful uh, how quick you jump on the bandwagon and in what ways you jump on the bandwagon and whether or not you really want to jump on the bandwagon. Or well, whether you realize the, the poles and you keep, try to keep from them. Yeah, yeah exactly. And th- that's what we'd like to do, um, we think, during January and February. Uh, we might get farther than we expected today, but um, we're going to aim to get out five of what we're calling the ten questions to check how gospel-centered you really are. So we're going to admit that we want to be gospel-centered, uh, but we're also going to admit that there are weaknesses to being gospel-centered. Um, maybe a better play, a better way to put it than weaknesses would be um, wrong understandings of what it means to be gospel-centered. Um, we preach hey, Christ... What's that? I said, maybe we should um, tell our listeners why we think it's a good thing to be gospel-centered within the boundaries that we're drawing. Uh, that would be a great place a to start. Idea? Let's do that. Um, do you want to reasons... include in this? I know we, you were going to talk about some of the history leading up to this. Do you want to make I that can. part I'll, of this? I'll do both of those. How's okay, that? do that. That was the cough button for those of you uninitiated listeners. Um, <laughs> insert the, cough here. Insert cough here. Um, so why why is this even a live issue? Why why it, why are we concerned about being gospel centered and that it being a good thing? Assuming that you don't fall into the pitfalls, uh, the basic reason is because of the Apostle Paul, and that if you look just at the macro level at the structure of Paul's letters. What Paul does, we'll just take Ephesians because it's easy, um, in the first three chapters of Ephesians is that he reminds believers of the gospel. He tries to put them back in mind of the gospel. In And then comes later, uh, in good Westminster West form, um, we were taught the... Um, 
the difference between an indicative and an imperative. An indicative tells you what is true about you because of your union with Christ. And an imperative is the gratitude uh, that you ought to offer to God because of what uh, he has given you in Christ. And so we want to be gospel-centered because when we, when we read Paul, um, what we find, and really this is, this is everywhere in the New Testament, um, what we find is that Paul always brings people back to the gospel. Um, and, and he's bringing them back to the gospel as believers because the gospel is a hard thing to believe. Uh, we'd rather justify ourselves. Um, we'd rather be self-righteous. We'd rather feel good about ourselves. And so, uh, or, uh, if we may well, um, lose the sense of what we've gained from Christ and because of the struggle with sin or whatever, we may be downright depressed and forget all that we've been given by Christ. And that it's not based on our performance, but it's based on what he's done for us. And so Paul's always bringing people back to the gospel of believers, not just unbelievers, but believers. And so that's why we're just trying to follow in the steps of Paul. Um, and even of James, even even uh, what Luther called the Epistle of Straw, if you read James carefully, especially the outset of James, especially 118, he's also rooting you in the gospel. He's trying to say, look, the way that this path of life is, is meant to be lived, this is because you've been born again from above. You've been given a, a living hope. Um, and so... Um, it, that's that's why gospel centered is is good, uh, in our opinion, is that it's just uh, it's basic biblical New Testament Christianity is to be gospel centered. So it's not something we should be scared of. It's something actually we should want to emulate, uh, without the pitfalls that we're going to talk about uh, today. We also enter into this debate uh, in the midst of times within our own denomination, not as furious right now as it's been, say, in the last five years. Um, and more broadly in the Reformed world, uh, for, say, well, with intensity the last 10 years or so, um, but starting, oh, 35 years ago in the mid-70s, there was a debate at Westminster Philly um, about this very topic. Um, and really the topic is a little bit broader than, than gospel-centered. The topic is, how do believers end up living holy lives? Everyone understands that we're to live holy lives. But how does that come about? How does it actually end up happening? That when given the opportunity, believers do good works and keep from sin by grace. How does that actually happen? And that question has been answered at least in the last 35 years, um, and probably larger than that, or a longer time period than that. But at least in the last 35 years, you have two camps that were set up at Westminster Philly, and they've just persisted in our circles over the years. One camp was um, represented by Norman Shepard. And basically, uh, Shepard made a, a big deal about the fact that justification and sanctification were so inseparable that if a person um, wasn't, um, wasn't evidencing their fealty to the covenant, um, then they couldn't possibly claim to be justified. So putting, trying to say that the problem... Um, with people's sanctification is that they are not uh, working hard at keeping the law. And that if they weren't working hard at keeping the law and they actually were not uh, keeping the law, uh, then they had no right to claim that they were, that they were justified. Um, on the other side of that debate, so that's, so motivation there is people ought to be holy. The way that we tell them they need to be holy is that we need to tell them they, you need to be holy. 
you can do this. Um, by God's grace, but you can do this. And that was roughly uh, Shepard's answer. Um, on the other side of the debate, Jack Miller, practical theology professor, not a systematic theology professor, which got him into trouble sometimes, but um, practical theology professor Jack Miller said, no, 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 no. That's not the problem. The problem with people not being holy. Now, remember that, that in this era, easy believism was very rampant. And so these two were reacting to a Christianity that said, you can trust in Jesus, and as long as you've trusted in Jesus, you know, you're good to go to heaven. And this was the, the era of easy believism that really got slam-dunked by MacArthur maybe a decade later. Um, belief, but, as, uh, belief as fire insurance. Belief as fire insurance, and really... Um, and you still find this at places. Oh, yeah. We're going to talk oh, yeah. later on, uh, either this month or next month, about the R word. And that, to me, a church cannot <laughs> claim to it be It has more than four gospel. letters, just in case you're yes, trying to figure out what the R word, word is. Yes. Um, if a church does not preach repentance, it does not preach the gospel. And we still have this with us today in many circles. Just believe in Jesus. You'll be good to go. So these two men rose up in the midst of an era where easy believism was gaining ascendancy, and it was of great concern to the church. So how do you answer easy believism? How do you answer people that, that are not serious about holiness, who are not um, answering those those calls to obedience? How do you answer them? Shepard said the way that you answer them is you say, if you're not obeying, you have no right to believe that you're justified. Uh, Miller came along and he said, you know, I, I see where you're going, and I see the concern. I have the same concern. But but I think that the answer is, is quite different than that, actually. The answer is that people are not enamored enough with God. They don't sense enough the privileges and the standing that they have with God. And so Miller came along, and he developed the Sonship Materials, and the take one um, of the Sonship Materials, and he basically said, look, if people got Galatians— if they got that they've been adopted by sons, if they sense the privileges that they've been given by Christ, they would turn to God and they would say, what, what, what may I do for you? And they would obey, not under coercion, not under threat, but out of joy. Obedience, and, obedience motivated not by fear, but by grace. Yes, exactly. And, and by my, my emotions about the fact that I've been given grace because all of us do exactly what we feel like at any time. And so even when we conquer a lesser emotion uh, with a greater emotion towards duty or something like that, we're still being ruled always, always ruled by what we want to do. And so what Miller was saying is that our problem is that we don't have enough love for God that overcomes our resistance to obedience and so what we need to do is have a better sense of, of our privilege. So and this that, is too That's stark. interesting, Matt, because yeah. uh, Miller also said uh, he was one who pushed, oftentimes we need to do right action and allow the feelings to follow. So this was not just an emotionalism. Correct. Correct. But, it, but it, it's more, what's the, what's the end game? What, what is it that, what, what is the... It, it, I've never put it this way, but maybe I'll put it this way just for the first time, float it here live on the air. Um, what does the obedience of heaven look like? And then how do we bring that obedience from the future back into the present? Yeah, the obedience how, of heaven, how does sanctification relate to justification? Right. 
Exactly. But in heaven, people are not obeying because um, they fear punishment or they fear their loss of, of covenant privileges. They're obeying because they see God as worthy. And, of course, I've already sort of tilted my hand in terms of that I don't think the shepherd has the right answer. Um, Hebrews is there. I agree. Hebrews is there. And there are threats. But the threats are not related to, um, you know, be holy or you're cut off. The threats are there because people were actually walking away from Jesus. They were walking away from relying upon Jesus only for salvation. And they were tempted to turn to other things. So those threats are much more in Hebrews. Those threats are much more not about, um, hey, you look lustfully at a woman. If you keep doing that, you're you're out. It's It's much more... Oh, you think it's angels and Jesus? That's a very dangerous position to be in. It's about the object of reliance. It's about the means of access that Hebrews is concerned about. That's what those strong warnings are about, is people who are who are doing Jesus and. That's what the warnings are about. Now, th- this is a, a perfect segue, Matt, because w- you just said, you, you know, your agreement your, lies with uh, what Miller was saying, not with Shepard, and yet... So much of what we're going to talk about today is making sure that our gospel, the gospel we're preaching, is a is a biblical gospel, mm-hmm. um, a whole counsel of God gospel, and includes things, as you said a minute ago, includes things like repentance. Right. In fact, I think I think that the repentance that Miller pushed people towards, and you know this well, Sean, because you had early access to the Sunship materials, the repentance that Miller pushed people towards was a far deeper repentance than those that Shepard pushed people towards. Um, and I think that's missed sometimes by some of our generation of ministers who have taken gospel-centered and they've kind of made it like, well, wink, wink, you don't have to be worried that much about obedience. Because yeah, which, Miller was which concerned is, not just which is about scary. your obedience. Yeah, it is. I mean, and Miller wasn't just concerned about your 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 obedience, but he was concerned about what you thought about the good things that you did too, and how much more you've got to repent about that. And yeah. in that, he was much more of an heir, I think, of the Puritans um, in in repenting of our self-righteousness. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, you want to pick up the first one of these? Well, yeah, let's, let's begin to move through these. Um, Maybe one other comment we need to add at the uh, at the front end is that gospel centered means different things to different churches. Uh, one of the things you and I, Matt, were talking about uh, before we hit the record button was the difference between uh, sort of a a conservative traditional Presbyterian church and what you might call a, a hipster church, mm-hmm. you know, one of these new church plants that's aiming at a particular demographic uh, with a very, with very different style of worship, perhaps. And among both groups, you have people calling themselves gospel-centered. Mm-hmm. And so one of the questions we'll need to ask, uh, I don't know, I, I imagine that there's good churches and bad churches of both extremes in both groups. And so what these 10 questions are hoping to do is is ask all those who would say, 
I'm gospel-centered. I preach Christ and him crucified, nothing else. Um, among all of those, these are weaknesses that we could have. And those weaknesses are going to be either we're going to make it all about justification or we're going to make it all about sanctification. Yes. Or even maybe make it all about glorification. And because we do that, because we have an, an emphasis, a focus, um, our pe- the people who are listening to us, talking to pastors right now, the people who are listening to us will hear what we say, but more importantly, they'll hear what we're excited about. Uh, this was something I heard from D.A. Carson uh, just recently in a, um interview that he did. He talked about how the social gospel came about. That is, the um, churches going into places and doing mercy ministry without ever sharing their faith. Hmm. And he said the way it came about was that there were honest, godly believers who were excited about mercy ministry. Now, tell me, we've, we've got that's big today in our circles. Right. And he said, but what happens is the people who are listening to them They hear what they're excited about, but they don't always catch the balance. And what happened in the social, with the social gospel is that over the course of a couple generations, people who were excited about mercy ministry forgot to, about the gospel. And, and honestly, what the gospel centered movement is, is an attempt to reclaim the gospel among those who followed the social gospel. For many, that's that's what it's about, mm-hmm. and so we need to be careful. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say that like a dozen times during this podcast. Uh, we need to be careful because uh, we can easily slip into extremes, and we want to keep the whole council, the whole council. And I'll be honest; these ten questions uh, stem from not only uh, our examination of what's going on out there, what we've seen, but they also stem from our own Mm -hmm. self-examination. You know, Matt and I are just as susceptible to any of these weaknesses as anybody else. And so, so let's put them out there. Um, Can I add one caveat? Yeah, one caveat. You might be listening to this and you might think, hey, these guys I've been listening to, I thought they were ordinary means guys. What if they say another gospel centered? I'm going to stop listening to them. Or, or you know, what do you but mean? But don't worry, I we're not hip. Was, but I always thought that, that gospel centered was a bad thing. And I guess one of the messages we want to get across is, um, with caution, gospel centered is not antagonistic to ordinary means. It actually is at the core of it. And you shouldn't miss that to our very, very conservative friends who listen. This is not, this is, this is the Apostle Paul. Uh, sure, people distort it, and sure, people do it wrong. But we're trying to demonstrate to you that, that we think there's a way to do it without distortion that's incredibly helpful to the people of God. Well, what are the ordinary means except the way that God works his gospel in our lives? Right. So I, they, they, they have to go together. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not you like that, like the term... Um, that's the movement today, and I think I think at the end of it all, we've got to just get back to biblical language 
and right. and do what we're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, which brings us to our ten questions. Uh, the first one is so. This is ten questions to check how gospel centered you really are. You want to be like Paul? Okay. The first question is: Is hell a part of your gospel? As you look at the gospel that you believe as a person, as if you're a pastor listening to this, if you look look at the gospel that you preach, uh, whoever you are, look at the gospel that you have believed. Who was it? Was that Boyce who said, uh, you will always believe the gospel that has been preached to you? So if the gospel that was preached to you was woefully short on biblical truth, you'll have believed a false gospel. Right. Is hell a part of that gospel? Now, Which means if somebody came to your church for six months, would they hear throughout the course of your preaching that hell exists, that it's for unrepentant people, and that the only way that a person can be saved from hell is by desperately clinging to Jesus and turning from their sins? And if you're an individual who is sitting in that church and who is hearing the message of the gospel, do you look at yourself and say, as you cling to Christ, are you saying to yourself, he has freed me from the hell I deserve to go to? Now, one of the questions, one of the responses that I think this question brings up, and it's it's purposely, we're purposely phrasing the questions like this. Is hell a part of the gospel? Well, you might say, of course not. The gospel saves me from hell, therefore hell has no place in my gospel. And, you know, to which I say, exactly. So, Matt, let's use um, the illustration of uh, Seattle, since you're closer to... Are you closer to Canada than I am? About two hours. No, we're... Okay, I'm a little bit further, because I've got to go around the lake. So we're both pretty close to Canada. Well, let's say, imagine that armies out of the north from Canada uh, came came down into Seattle, or they came down into Pennsylvania, and the prophets arose and they 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 said to everybody, "Flee to Idaho," or over here it's probably "Flee to Ohio." Would you do it? What well, you might, um, if the prophet just said to you. Flee to Idaho, flee to Idaho, flee to Idaho, and didn't tell you that the armies were that armies were coming. You might be like, "Why? Why do I need to go to Idaho?" Um, yeah, sure, there's cheap housing there. Although I think that boom's gone now. I think the houses are houses are more expensive in Idaho now because everybody moved there. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you just tell people flee to Christ, if you just tell people flee to Idaho, where's the motivation to flee? You've got to see the armies coming. You've got to see the impending doom. Um, fear of hell actually pushes us to the gospel. This is one of those questions that um, oh, we have, uh, godly people have argued over for decades, centuries even, and that is the whole idea of rewards and punishment as motivation to belief. Mm-hmm. And it's clearly in well, the scripture. It's more, it's more difficult motivation to service, but yeah, yeah. And Randy Alcorn, by the way, the law of rewards is excellent on this topic. No, oh, I'm not not familiar with that book. Um, but that's something. It's clear that the Bible uses them. 
The Bible mm-hmm. uses the idea of fear of punishment as a motivator. The Bible uses the idea of promise of reward as a motivator. So for, for whatever we think, we, we have to accept that it's there. Well, fear of hell should be one of those motivators that pushes us to believe in Christ. Um, ask yourself, am I focusing on the fleeing to Christ without knowing exactly what it is I'm fleeing from? Um, ask yourself, you know, ask the question of your pastor. If you're a pastor, ask the question of yourself. Am I telling people to flee to Christ, but I'm not showing them what exactly to flee from? Now, I have a quote, and it's a little bit long, um, so I'm going to be a prophet and predict that we're not going to get past question three today. But this is a quote from D.A. Carson uh, in his book, The Gagging of God, uh, which was written in 1996. Although I think they just updated it. I think there was a second edition put out recently. Uh, He says this. Uh, He says, The naked reality is that no one in the Bible is reported to talk as much about hell as Jesus. Yes, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, but his compassion does not prevent him from uttering the woes of Matthew 23. Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost is an invitation to flee the corruption of the day, Acts 2.40. That fleeing is appropriate terminology precisely because in line with the inherited theology of the Old Testament prophets, that corruption will surely bring judgment. Paul can describe the gospel he preaches as that which saves men and women from the coming wrath, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. No New Testament writer has provided a more profound, terrifying, and yet strangely compassionate account of the wrath of God than Paul in Romans, uh, chapters 1 through 3. The last book of the Bible not only depicts in in apocalyptic imagery horrific sequences of judgments, but peaks in the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. Those who worship the beast will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torments rises forever and ever, Revelation 14. Now, Carson summarizes this little Bible study this way. He says, The point that cannot be escaped is that God's wrath is not some minor and easily dismissed peripheral element to the Bible's plot line. Theologically, God's wrath is not inseparable from what it means to be God. Rather, his wrath is a function of his holiness as he confronts sin. Mm-hmm. But insofar as holiness is an, in, is an attribute of God, and sin is the endemic condition of this world, this side of the fall, divine wrath cannot be ignored or, or evaded. It is not going too far to say that the Bible would not have a plot line at all if there were no wrath. Mm. So, I mean, that that sums it up. Mm-hmm. Hell has got to be a part of our gospel because it is hell that pushes us, that drives us. It's seeing day by day, uh, not only the day I b- first believed, the day I was justified, seeing my sin and knowing that the condemnation of God rested upon me. But now, day by day, as I go back to that gospel and I strive to be holy as my heavenly Father is holy through the application of that gospel, 
the thing that pushes me is seeing that every time I sin, I'm adding something else to the cross. Mm-hmm. Well, and two, that, um, you know, people that I pastor that have sensitive consciences have a hard time. I tell them the more sin that you know about yourself, the more grateful you ought to be, the more thankful you ought to be, the more that grace ought to mean something to you because you thought that grace was only, you know, yay big. But then you see this whole new crevice in your heart that's black and dirty and ugly and you've been sitting in this way your whole life and you had no idea about it. The reaction ought to be not just, oh, I'm such a louse. Yeah, true. But if new areas of sin come as a surprise to you and a disappointment to you, then maybe you didn't realize how much of a sinner you were, nor did you realize how big grace actually was. And that, that Jesus came precisely because you are that kind of sinner and that the only possible remedy was himself. So we shouldn't be scared of that. Uh, uh, To me, um, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's CJ Mahaney who, has an honest quip when people ask him how you're doing and he says better than I deserve. I, I think that the the preservation of the idea daily that I am hell deserving uh, t- tends to lend perspective to life <laughs> because I am far better even with the headache and stress today uh, than I deserve. And if I ever lose that sense because I'm not reminded of what I deserve, that I'm held deserving, and yet I've received grace from Jesus, um, something's amiss if I can't say that I'm doing better no matter what kind of day it is, better than I deserve because I'm not right now, perpetually and forever in hell. Um, Something's amiss with the heart. And maybe it's because it's been amiss. uh, The heart is amiss because it's been, the preacher hasn't oriented the heart correctly. Hmm. Matt, have you seen Tangled yet? Mm-mm. Okay. Completely. This is, this is actually related. Um, best Disney animated flick ever. Wow. That's pretty high. So, I mean, <laughs> accolades just... from you, my film critic friend, <laughs> but what's the, what's the gist of it? I, I don't here, even know anything about it's it. Rapunzel. It's Rapunzel. Oh, Okay, but great, great music, great, uh, great voicing. Um, the songs aren't no repulsive uh, pagan worldview. Well, well, I'm getting to that. Okay, um, <laughs> um, it's the songs aren't quite as singable as Little Mermaid. Ah, uh, yes. So, but uh, you know, the the thing, the thing. Okay, so here's the there's the positive. You know, it's Disney's fiftieth. Animated film. Wow. And, uh, it, great children astray for 75 years. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Here, here's the thing. Here's the message that is in every Disney movie. And you just, you don't have to look far to find it. Um, the answer besides latent feminism, <laughs> which is also always there. It's always the story of some girl who has to break free of the mores of patriarchy. Um, Besides that, um, this message, believe in yourself. It's in every Disney movie. That's ultimately how the character succeeds, mm-hmm. is by believing in themselves, believing them capable, uh, grasping the human spirit, whatever you want to call it. 
I'm not but, detecting anything wrong with what you're saying. With believing in yourself? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Uh, no, we're supposed to believe in Jesus. <gasps> oh, 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 sorry. I slipped there for just a second. <laughs> so, so get, you'll get that. You'll get a, you'll get a happy little dose of believing in yourself entangled even while you're enjoying the film. So just uh, beware that is, I think it's a great conversation starter with the kids because so much of modernity ever since the psychology movement, um, ever since self-esteem became a, a catchphrase is, that if we can just believe in ourselves, um, I'm I'm talking to you, Joel Osteen. Uh, if we could just believe in ourselves, everything's going to be just fine. And wait, hold on. Hell, <laughs> if you believe in yourself, if you yep. think you have within yourself what it takes to have success, to uh, achieve your dreams, to get her done. You're you're on a path. You're not on the narrow path. You're on the wide one, and it's not a pretty. There's there's a not a pretty cliff at the end of that path. Well, and I think that you you hit you hit on something very very important. If we, maybe sometime we'll do you know enemies of the gospel or something like that. But I, I have become convinced that uh, a year this a lot of these ten were originated by Sean, and this is commentary by Matt um, on top of them. But um, I've become convinced that the self-esteem movement that's embraced by many, many Christians, the self-esteem movement is probably the single greatest enemy of the gospel in our time. Because the gospel tells you, you are lousy and unworthy. Only God is worthy. And the self-esteem movement comes along and says, you're worthy. Go find out your worthiness. Hmm. And that is silently believed by me. I want to feel good about myself. I want to think I'm okay. I want to think you're okay, Sean. Of course, you've known me. Well, too you just long. Matt. You you've just known me. Keep thinking you've known that. me too long <laughs> to know that I'm not okay. And your wife's known you too long to know that you're not okay. You know that I'm. Um, yeah, I'm definitely. I'm. I'm not okay. You're not okay. But it's my, it's my first book. We would. We want to walk home. At the end of the day, and say, um, "I'm okay. I did good. I, I can feel good about myself today." But see, the gospel tells us we can do that. That's why the gospel is good news. Is because hell-bound sinners can rejoice. If absolutely, if we have learned to turn away from that instinct to justify ourselves to try and justify our own existences by our own efforts, um, by, our, by, the, um, by the worship of our own idols. I, I'm, I've been really struck. We probably mentioned this in the podcast, but I've been struck by Tim Keller's um, Counterfeit Gods. And one of the things that he says in there is he recounts part of Chariots of Fire and that um, not... Uh, Eric uh, Little or Liddell, however you pronounce his name, but his opponent, Harold Abrams, um, is talking about why he has such a compulsion to run. And he looks down the 100-meter lane and he says, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. Hmm. Wow, what a, what a contrast between those two people. Yeah, and that's, but that's all of us in some way or another. We're looking somehow... To justify our existence, to feel good about ourselves, especially in America, where we're very individualistic 
and our identity is not rooted in family or community or social standing or, or anything like that. Our identity is rooted somehow in who we are, what we've done. Um, that it's extraordinarily powerful to turn away from the gospel, to actually avoid daily, I'm a hell-deserving sinner because I desperately, quietly in the background want to feel good about myself. And so this is a great enemy of this first, you know, of your top 10 list here, of our top 10 list here. It's a great enemy, uh, self-esteem is, of embracing this and of saying daily, I am a hell-deserving sinner. I am unworthy. But God is so worthy because he saw me like that and he was compassionate and he sent his son. He didn't spare his son, but gave him up for me. So, so let's, let's keep that image in our head. Jesus hanging on the cross. He, he sent his son that his son might give himself mm. so that his son might take the wrath that was due me upon himself. Our second question, is sin a part of your gospel? I know it's obviously related to the first question because hell is where sinners go. Jesus says... Unrepentant sinners. Unrepentant sinners, which that's number four. And and maybe we can get to four today. Uh, Number four is, is repentance a part of your gospel? So it's, it's tied. Maybe we could do four and two here and then we're going to, we'll bring in three and, and finish, finish up with that. But is sin a part of your gospel? If sin is a part of your gospel, then repentance has to be a part of your gospel because the sin's got to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. Something's got to be done about the sin and living in unrepentance with our sin doesn't send the sin anywhere. Just mm-hmm. believing Jesus died on the cross for sinners doesn't make my sin go away and it doesn't save me. Maybe I'm walking some fine lines here, but there's got to be... Jesus doesn't put his spirit in us for no reason. Mm-hmm. If his spirit is within us, convicting us, that we will be repenting. Repentance will be an outflow of the gospel we've believed. And if the gospel we've believed doesn't have sin as the great enemy, as you said, mm-hmm. you know, let's set aside the sins out there. Let's just talk like psychology. Let's talk about the sins in here in my own heart, my own sin, the stuff I deal with every day, the stuff, you know, the, the uh, stuff that my heart dreams, the stuff that my mind thinks, the stuff my mouth says, the stuff my hands do that's garbage. It's what do just, I do with It's that? me making mud pies. Seems to me that was a Jack Miller illustration. I don't remember what it was. Maybe that was in Sonship. I think Jack Miller had an illustration about making mud pies. But is sin a part of our gospel? Um, I think that um, I'm preaching... My, I was out the last two weeks, and I'm preaching um, my New Year's sermon this week. And um, I'm doing, uh, I think it's the first time I've ever taught it on First Thessalonians, but I'm doing First Thessalonians 2 um, about Paul's gospel-centeredness, and particularly the way that he went about doing gospel ministry in the first century among pagans. But it's interesting the way that Paul deals with this issue of repentance to the Thessalonians. 
uh, in 190 says for um, for they themselves uh, speaking about um, uh, others who had heard the gospel. Let me just get the context here. First Thessalonians one. Um, so um, so the other believers in um, Macedonia and Achaia. They, Paul says, First Thessalonians one nine. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's the heart of repentance. And the very next verse is the one that we quoted in the Carson quote just a moment ago. And to wait from a son from heaven, whom we raise from the dead, dead Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Yeah. So there, Paul puts it together very, very carefully for you. Um, and I think that that's the, that's the essence. There's no turning to God that does not include a turning from idols. Re- repentance essentially is us saying God is worthy of being worshipped, of being um, trusted, of being served. And you judged an idol of some sort as worthy of being worshipped and trusted and served. And so you sinned because you thought that idol was worth it. And so there's, there can't be a turning to God that is not a turning from idols. People who are familiar with my preaching who've seen me preach, I have this particular way that I preach the gospel in our church, and, and I actually do a turning from, that we turn from um, dead, dead idols. Because all sin is in service of an idol. We think that sin will get us something. And so that's why we do it, because we think it'll get us something. We think it'll make us happy. And so there's no turning to God that doesn't include turning from. There's no believing that doesn't include repenting. And if you don't, if there's not sin in your gospel, then there's nothing to repent from. And why are you turning to God anyways? To feel better about yourself? Oops. That's, that's mm. not it. That's not <laughs> it. That's not, how, that's not how it works. That's the Disney gospel. Yeah, absolutely. That's the, that's the psychology gospel. Yeah. Um, it, Peter Jones, uh, Dr. Peter Jones, talks about the fact that nobody goes to the Grand Canyon to feel better about themselves. We don't. We don't look at the awesomeness of God to feel to feel good about ourselves. We look at the awesomeness of God to say, "You're worthy." Of course, what an idiot I've been. You're worthy of being of worshiping of me, worshiping you, of me trusting you, of me serving you. How how may I serve? It's that it's that it's the Isaiah six reaction. That's that's the that's the believer's dynamic. Isaiah six. I seek God's holiness. I see my sin. I see my sin taken away, and I, and I say, "Here I am, Lord, send me." And and not just send me to the mission field or send me to seminary, but but send me as a uh, set apart servant of yours to serve you in the world in holiness and in, and in mission. That's 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 the biblical dynamic. So if you're preaching. And you are preaching the gospel. Are you bold in telling people what they're doing wrong? Mm. Or is it just, as we said before, is it just flee to, uh, flee to Idaho, flee to Idaho, flee to Christ, flee to Christ? Or are you bold in saying, here are, what you said, Matt, here are the idols. Here are the idols that you are setting up. Here are the sins in your life for which the wrath of God is coming upon you. Now flee to the only salvation from the wrath to come. Flee to Christ. And some of this for you sneaky preachers out there, um, some of this is that you selectively preach on things. 
So you don't pick up a gospel that talks a lot about wrath. I'm starting Matthew next week. You don't pick up a gospel that talks a lot about wrath and hell because or repentance because you don't want to have to deal with those things. So you might say, well, you know, well, I just haven't had the opportunity to preach on those things. Well, why haven't you picked up Matthew? Uh, you know, why haven't you picked up something like Thessalonians that talks about the wrath to come? Or why haven't you preached something that's more challenging to preach, like Hebrews or James? Um, where you people would really get called to account to live out the new hearts that have been given by Christ and, and to live out their their desperate dependence in community. Hebrews is very interested in doing that in community, in church, in the church, in the congregation. Um, why haven't you picked up those things and preached them? You know, so this can be as much neglect uh, as as it is that when you get there, you're mealy-mouthed about it. John, in his epistles, uh, is straightforward. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now, is that saying that my act of confessing is what saves me? Of course not. We've we've never said that. We never, but. If I'm not confessing, if I'm not repenting, I, I mean, you look at the book of Acts, Matt, I think, are you preaching through Acts right now? I'm done. You're done. If you, going through the book of Acts, you, you just finished, I finished uh, a couple years ago going through the book of Acts. What is it? It's repent and believe. The two go hand in hand throughout that book. You never find the one without the other. Like you said, it's, it's the turning to and the turning from. Now, this, this is beautiful. Okay, number one was, is hell a part of your gospel? Numbers, number two was, is sin a part of your gospel? And we'll tie that in with number four, which is, is repentance a part of your gospel? Uh, number three, you know, we're not going to get to number three. We're going to, we're going to leave you hanging on what number three is. So you've got one, two, and four. Let me, let me give you Martin Luther on number four. Martin Luther on, is repentance a part of your gospel? Listen to this. He says, many now talk only about forgiveness of sins and say little or nothing about repentance. There neither is forgiveness of sins without repentance, nor can forgiveness of sins be understood without repentance. Mm. It follows that if we preach the forgiveness of sins without repentance, that the people imagine that they have already obtained the forgiveness of sins becoming thereby secure and without compunction of conscience. This would be a greater error and sin than all the errors hitherto prevailing. Surely we need to be concerned lest, as Christ says in Matthew 12, the last state become worse than the first. I just want to read that sentence right in the middle. If we preach the forgiveness of sins without repentance the people will imagine they have already obtained the forgiveness of sins, becoming thereby secure without compunction of conscience. That is a scary, scary place to be. Absolutely. If, if gospel-centered to us means I preach grace and nothing but grace and I, and I don't preach the law, this is, this is part of a, a bigger... This Luther quote is a part of a bigger section on Luther on the law. If I'm not preaching sin and hell 
and repentance and the law as those things that push us to Christ, then the people will assume they're forgiven and it will be a deadly assumption. Absolutely. And we'll talk about, we'll link a little bit for you next month about what role does the law play in the life of the believer. That's one of our points further down. But yeah. that's very important that uh, the way that I've put it, because I, I find it the most helpful formulation, is that the law sends us to Christ and Christ sends us back to the law to form our obedience. Um, and we have to keep that. And sometimes that's lost in, in gospel-centered circles. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us uh, this month. Uh, sorry, the podcast was a little late this month, but uh, it should be My up fault. there. Oh, it's okay. Um, it'll it'll be up there on the servers, and it'll stay up as long as the podcast exists. So we thank you for listening, and uh, we trust that you'll think seriously about the things that we've talked about. Uh, that you'll consider whether um, things like hell and sin and repentance are a part of what you have believed and what drives you to Christ each day. Um, So as you do that, may the Lord richly bless you through his ordinary means. Mm